God, for the gift of today, we give thanks for the mystery of our own existence, to be here in this sacred place, Southern California, to feel the creativity and the power that you have sewn into the very fabric of creation, to put our feet in the sand and feel cold water run over our feet in the ocean, and to know that we are at this place where mountain meets ocean and this diversity of Southern California, God, we don't have to be geniuses to realize that we are part of something that is so far beyond our ability to understand or comprehend. How you even have aligned the stars and the planets so that life can flourish here on planet Earth is beyond what we can hold, yet not even explain. So God, thank you for this afternoon, for the gift that is the breath that we breathe, for the blood that is in our veins. Help us to believe that you are closer to us than we are to ourselves. Help us to know from our head to our toes that you made us in love, that you made us in beauty, and that you made us in hope. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So... Um, today, you know, every time a preacher preaches a sermon or every time a preacher teaches a class, they're first doing it for themselves. Just, I hope you know that. So every time now you hear a sermon for the next six months, I want you to think, oh, that guy's preaching or that woman's preaching to herself or he's preaching to himself first because we are. Um, we're trying to believe it too. Um, Tom Long has this great line. He says that the preacher's job is to help the church talk themselves into being Christian. <laughs> okay, we're going to do this another day, right? So let's, let's talk ourselves into this. Um, so specifically today is um, I'm suspending all the normal rules by which I evaluate a presentation because I'm in California. And who's got time to be stressed? <laughs> like, Right? Like it's we'll do that another another time. So what I want to do is um, I just I want to share with you things that I think about all the time and I don't always know how to even talk about them and I don't even know always the orthodox theological way to talk about them. So I'm suspending some of those concerns because I think there's something going on in the world and in our, the deepest parts of our soul that we hear a particular song and something in us rises up and we don't know where it comes from. Or a friend has a baby for the first time and we haven't really been around babies and then you go in the hospital and you walk in and you're like, my friend who could barely graduate college like now is responsible for this other human and they're gonna let that friend who couch surf for a year after college, like take that human out of the hospital. And then you look into the eyes of that baby and you're just like, what, what is this world that we live in? Like, where, how did we get here? What are we doing here? Um, so I want to go beyond dogma and doctrine. And I want to suggest that there is another some might call it mystical. Some people aren't comfortable with that word. Um, Paul uses the word mystery all the time. So if you need Bible, you've got Paul talking about the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of 
the supremacy of Jesus. But I want to kind of go beyond dogma and doctrine, at least as we use those words, and just um, talk about being awake and being resurrected people and having our eyes open to the mystery of our own existence. Um, I have three sons. So to start off, I want to start with a confession. Since I can remember uh, in my earliest childhood, I have felt a tension between these two things. Wondrous awe of creation and people, but also an awareness of my smallness and insignificance. Um, Another way to say this is, as humans, we are born into paradox. And this is just one of the things that I believe about life. I, I, I have... I have things that you're not going to change my mind about, like um, you should never order Chinese food at a restaurant, a restaurant run by Hispanics. I learned that in Detroit. I grew up in Detroit. <laughs> um, Randy Harris says you should never uh, play chess with a Russian. You should never date a woman with a dragon tattoo. Like, it's not going to end well. Um, and one of, one of the things that I believe absolutely is that the only way I think you can be sane is to embrace the reality of paradox. We are both wonderfully and fearfully made, and we are incredibly insignificant. We are, each of us as individuals, walking miracles, right? Everything that has to go on in Colin's body right now to keep Colin awake, to be one of the best note takers I've ever been around. Everything that's happening in, in, in his respiratory system and with his skin and eyes and the way that I'm using air particles to come out of my mouth to project onto that inner part of his ear that then transmits to the brain. And you're doing that right now as you're hearing me talk. Like everything is a miracle, right? And yet, we're so ordinary, so commonplace, so mundane. And I can remember as a child, even like just being awake to that and wondering why we didn't talk about that in church and why the poets and the artists and the bonos of the world talk about it, but not when you go into this wooden A-frame building on Sunday mornings. So that's why I want to talk about it. Um, I recently just came back from Israel and had this incredible experience of being at the Sea of Galilee. I took uh, 40 people from our church, and I had the same feeling all over again. I couldn't figure out how to get this off my phone, so that's why I'm showing off my Instagram account. But this is the Sea of Galilee at sunrise two weeks ago. Any of you been to Israel? Yeah, good, a good number of you. you. You've been in this spot, right? You know. When you get to the Sea of Galilee, you're thinking... I love Jerusalem, but I'll take the Sea of Galilee over Jerusalem the whole time. Um, we took a group, like many people do, to a site that, that may, or may be the place where Jesus was baptized. Um, it's this perfect Wednesday afternoon three weeks ago in the Jordan River. Um, Twenty people were baptized. And you're in the water, if you guys got to hear Collins um, talk this morning from John 7. 
you're in the water and you think about your body. I was thinking about this too this morning. Your body is 90% water, <laughs> right? Like, and you're in the Jordan River. You know the imagery of the Spirit hovering over the water in Genesis 1. And you know that Revelation ends with the new heavens, the new Jerusalem, and there's a city and a river runs through it. Um, and to be in the Jordan River with these people from your church family who have traveled so halfway around the world, and then the sun breaks out, you have these incredible trees, it's perfect 75 degrees day, you're in that river, and to make the claim that you believe that the second member of the Trinity left Father and Spirit to move into Nazareth to launch this thing called the Kingdom of God, and oh, by the way, we're not talking about the Caesars from 2,000 years ago, we're talking about that guy. Um, do you see why it's almost more than our minds can hold? And um, do you see why so many people walk away from it? Because it, it's beautiful, but it's crazy. Right? It, it is a beautiful story, but you guys, it's a crazy story. <laughs> it's a crazy... I was with a Christian and Jewish friend recently, and the Christian friend was chiding the, our Jewish friend about Hanukkah. If you know the story, the Christians would say the myth or the legend around Hanukkah. My Jewish friend was like, time out. You want to talk about crazy stories? Is that what we're talking about today? (laughs) And then, you know, we changed the subject real quick. Um, Okay, so another example of this. I'm just trying to invite you into this kind of way of thinking. Uh, the Atlantic ran this video uh, a year ago in which a group of pe- a team of people went out to the desert. I believe they're in Arizona, and they wanted to draw or help us feel the scale of the universe. And I just find their conclusions and their what they experience to be fascinating. This is Alex. I'm Hi. Wiley. He's going to be behind the camera. I'm going to be probably making a lot of mistakes on camera. We have 36 hours to measure the distances, trace out the orbits, and set up a time-lapse shot from up on top of a nearby mountain. To create a scale model with an Earth only as big as this marble, you need seven miles of empty space. So that's why we're here. Why did you guys come? I don't have a job. At this scale, the sun is a meter and a half, so about about that big around. So we are driving right now to Mercury, and we've arrived. Venus is the same size as Earth. rolling around on that one. Once the time lapse is ready, we'll drive each orbit with a light. Hopefully, you'll be able to tell just how big they really are. Onward to the outer planets. 
What should we do? This is when you realize you're the most powerful man in the room. <laughs> you are the most important person in this room right now. Because this is so good. So let's do this while he's figuring this out, and he's going to, we believe. Those of you who have those texts that I gave earlier, would you, doesn't matter the order, but would you read them for us while we're fixing this? Who's got the other one? Without the ear as voice, 
That tiny light out there is our sun, just over a mile away. The sun's way, way out there now. So right now, it's about 7 a.m. We just woke up right before the sun's about to rise. We are on the Earth's orbit. Wiley is over there holding our sun. Cue the dramatic sunrise music. So if we've made our model correctly, your perspective from where Earth is on the model will match your perspective from standing on the real Earth. So if you look back at the sun, you will see that the model sun and the real sun are the exact same size. And that's how you can tell that the proportions are correct. There are 24 people in the entire history of the human species, billions of people who have actually seen the full circle of the Earth with their own eyes. Following the breakfast, the astronauts went to the suit room where they donned their spacesuits. This is man's attempt to get to the moon. Zero. We have liftoff. Liftoff at 7.51. In Earth orbit, the horizon is just slightly curved. When you head on out to the moon, that horizon slowly curves around and upon itself, and all of a sudden you're looking at something that is very strange, but it is very, very familiar. Oh my God, look at that picture over there. Wow, is that pretty? You can put your thumb up, and you can hide the Earth behind your thumb. Everything that you have ever known, all behind your thumb. Not any bigger than that, way up there. It's really beautiful. You can cry. That's what I really wanted to try and, and capture. We are on a marble floating in the middle of nothing. When you sort of come face to face with that, it's, it's staggering. So the next time someone in your church wants to argue about if Junia in Roman 16 is a male or a female, be like, we are on a marble <laughs> in the middle of nothing. Like, stop taking yourself so seriously, right? Okay, uh, maybe you know this famous uh, quote from 
Carl Sagan. Do you guys know this photograph? It's a famous photograph. This uh, inscription explains, but it's uh, the Earth. This is, at one point, this was the furthest distance a camera had ever captured Earth. And I don't know if you can see it, but it's right there. Can you see that tiny dot? That's Earth. And Carl Sagan has this incredible quote. He says, that's home, that's us. Everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you've ever heard of, every human being who ever was, lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species live there on a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. A friend of mine sent me a text Tuesday morning, um, a, a new Hillsong uh, song that really speaks to her. And I just wrote, I texted her back. I said, why, why do you think that song speaks to you? And she said, I don't know, it just does. Um, she's going through a horrible divorce right now. And I wrote her back and said, here's why I think that song speaks to you. It's a creation song. Because I think so much that we live in the muck and mire of doctrine and dogma and ethics and what's the right choice and who's right in this situation and what's the right thing to do here, which we have to do. That the creation songs of the Psalms or This Is My Father's World or some of the great hymns of the church um, that I get in one sense are doctrinal. I get that. But in another sense, they're just core to our very existence. Like John Calvin said that the Bible is God's book, but creation is God's big book. So here's what I've noticed, and here's what I've been wrestling with in my particular context. Um, we have a number of men in our church who really struggle with faith. And as I've listened and I've, as I've asked questions, here's how I would summarize this kind of vastness of the universe and Christianity is going to make this claim that we've got the particular way of understanding the truth in, in the person of Jesus. Um, there is a giant gulf that we don't properly acknowledge. And here's the gulf, or here's the chasm. Um, it is one thing to be a theist, and all I mean by that is there is a divine power that holds the whole world together. There's a divine source, right? When you see that newborn baby I was describing in the hospital or you taste bluebell ice cream for the first time, like you know for sure there's a God, right? Um, you know there's a, there's a benevolent, generative, loving force that has made this world. That's theism. And Islam, Christianity, Hinduism, Baha'i, Judaism, they are all, and, and others, but they are all squarely in that category. When you think about the vastness of just the Milky Way, 
which, and we know now that there are thousands and thousands and thousands, if not millions, of Milky Ways. I was explaining this to my eight-year-old son at dinner the other day, and he goes, so you're telling me there's no other humans in any part? And I just said, I don't know. We don't have any evidence. But he's like, you're telling me there are hundreds of thousands of other galaxies, and there's no other humans? And I was like, I don't know. And, he, and then he said, didn't you go to school to know this stuff? <laughs> like, your education failed you, buddy. Um, but what I've noticed in our churches, when you get faced with this vast reality, this vast picture of, we live on planet Earth, which is this tiny marble suspended in the middle of nothingness, right? And we live our lives in changing diapers and how much did that Uber cost? And, right, and we lose sight of that wonder. Um, Particularly, I don't know why, but particularly in my context for men, here's the rub. Here's where it really gets difficult. It's not hard for many of the men that I share life with to say, yeah, there's a divine force that makes babies and bluebell ice cream and NBA basketball, right? And all the things that are like really good about life. But to cross the chasm you know where I'm going with this? And to say that that generative force, that unmovable being, that supreme power lived for 33 years in the backwoods of Galilee. This is the chasm that a lot of people are living in right now. And we use terms like secular, or sometimes on our worst days we use terms like pagan, and, and I understand that. Um, and I love how Christine Kane said this the other day. She's like, you just get in the middle of life and you live in the complexity and the mystery of it all, and before you know it, you have a context like ours where most people just think, Going to church is not going to help me cross that chasm to say, okay, who made the sunset and the moon and now I'm going to be a deacon or deaconess at my local... Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, this is where we are living right now in American culture. Most people look at a sunset or hear a new song that really speaks to them and they know intuitively, there's something bigger than all of us and are comfortable calling that God. But to make the move to say that God chose to uniquely express himself in the person of Jesus, that's a lifetime's worth of work for some people. And most of the men, I'm just speaking from my experience, but most of the men that I know who have left faith that's why. They can't, and I'm guessing some of you have children and grandchildren who are in that. We're even, we're even seeing that in youth group now. And they'll stay in youth group because they can do social justice work and they have friends, but they're already at 16 and 17, like feeling the weight of that. And that, I'm, I'm 39 years old, so I'm, younger than some of you, older than some of you, but 
that, we were not thinking about that when I was 15 years old. Okay, let me pause there. Does that make sense? Any of you experience that? Any of you live in that? Any of you have a friend you want to talk about? Sir? Uh, I work in research, but I yeah. 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 And uh, one of them, when we got the change in Facebook, actually, it forced him to really. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's interesting. When when I'm in those conversations, that often comes up, and it is helpful. Um, the other thing that's helpful in those conversations, it's not definitive, but helpful is that we are all story-driven creatures. So there's this incredible book. Um, I can't remember the author's name right now. He uh, taught at Brown for a long time, but his book is called The Storytelling Animals. Any of you familiar with this book? Storytelling Animals, I think, is a must-read. If you're a teacher, educator, preacher, his contention, he's not a Christian, but his contention is that story is what has allowed humanity to flourish over the last... 5,000 to however, however far back you want to date that. I'll, I'll let you insert your own number there. Um, and he looks at different civilizations, ancient and contemporary, and he looks at the way that story allows the, the, the human body to continue. And he looks at it from a neurological sense of what story does for the human body. Um, and so the move there is when, let's say, this very thoughtful, loving, generous, good person who was taught in the way of Jesus and grew up in a healthy community and started to have those questions at 11, 12, and 13 about the galaxy and how do we know that, that we represent truth and all that, when they start to really feel that gulf, and the gulf comes, goes from just being a little chasm to this giant Grand Canyon, um, the existential crisis that those people face, or you face, is what will you replace it with? You can't, you can't be storyless and be a human. It's impossible. Every atheist I've ever known, every agnostic I've ever known, every pantheist, panentheist, deist, there's a story there, right? Um, I got to go to the comedy store late last night in Hollywood, which... I'm sure is a must-do for most Pepperdine lecture <laughs> attenders. But every comedian who came out, I'm kind of doing my Monday morning, you know, pseudo-psychologist read on the situation. Every one of them are brilliant at what they do for one reason. They are trying to make sense of their own story. Also known as Seinfeld. He just inverted it and and did the Ecclesiastes move, right? So what I have learned in these conversations and sharing life with these people, these friends who live in that chasm, is to say, okay, if you're not sure about the Jesus story, which I'm going to get to tomorrow, but if you're not sure about the Jesus story, 
what, what are you going to do? And, and we know this from research, but where people usually get caught in this or feel really pressed is not when they get married. It's when they have kids. Right? What are we going to tell them? How many people have come back to Otter Creek since I've been there the last 10 years and said, we're not sure what we believe, but they know intuitively they've got to give their kids a deeper, richer story than their Little League baseball team, <laughs> right? Or the Cub Scouts. The apologetics, yeah. Yeah, I think those, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I think they're really helpful for a very particular kind of person. And then there's other people. Does that make sense? So um, some people are experiential, some people are rational. Some people are art artistic, some people are scientific. Just using simple categories, right? And I think for the, a certain mind, uh, I think those approaches are very, uh, that apologetic is really helpful. Um, I think for other people, it's interesting, but it doesn't move the needle as much as you think it might, or I might, I might think. But yeah, I don't want to discount. I don't want to discount that at all. Okay, other experiences with this gulf that I'm talking about. You have this realization that, oh, there has to be something that holds the world together that's made this, but to can make the creedal orthodox Christian confession that that power became Jesus of Nazareth and lived for 35 years and preached the kingdom of God and was crucified and raised on the third day. Wow, that is a big leap of faith. Do any of you have things that you're wrestling with right now? Yeah. We have, right, we have um, one of our, I was going to say one of our best uh, Bible teachers in our children's ministry program. I say that because I really like her. Um, she will call me once every six weeks on like a Saturday. And she's mid-60s. Like she's good at this. She's been doing this a long time. And she'll call me on a Saturday and be like, okay, how should I preach second, or how should I teach second kings to third graders tomorrow? And I used to mess with her, you know, I used to like text her back and be like, you don't. <laughs> That's how you do it, you don't do it. But what Colin's pointing out is what we've done when we've tried to contextualize particularly difficult stories, right? Is that our kids are become 16 and 18 and then they're really smart and they go back and actually read them and they recognize, That's not the story you told us. So the question is, do you smooth the rough edges or do you just skip it all together? Um, you know, and I mean, gee, just the first 11 chapters of Genesis, there's 10 or 11, you're like, mm. <laughs> and Noah got drunk and lay naked before the Lord. The next VBS. <laughs> yeah, so there's, there's really trouble. And then if you take it out of layer, Colin, then you've got the whole, how do you read Genesis 1? Right? And that's when the, that's when the claws come out on people. Because then you're starting to mess with, if you start to say, but Genesis 1 was written as a poem, so how do I explain that to, to my kid? You know? 
is it scientific proof or is it the Beatles, Genesis 1? Like, is it art? Is it science? Is it both? How does that work? Okay, so let me just make a couple of observations. Um, and then again, tomorrow I'm going to try and make the case that I, I think Jesus fits within this dilemma quite beautifully. But you can't skip the dilemma. And you can't reduce the dilemma. And you can't gloss over it because it's real. Um, a couple of uh, just observations. Um, I think, the, I think my experience teaches this, and I think the Bible confirms it, that the universe is full of possibility. There's this wonderful book called The Gift of the Jews. Do any of you know this writer? Um, it's a must-read, The Gift of the Jews. Thomas Cahill, I believe, is the, um, the author. But one of the things that Cahill argues, um, he starts you in Genesis, and he says um, Christians and Muslims especially need to appreciate how radically different the story of Israel was from all the other stories that were being told when the Torah was first oral tradition and then written down into what we now have as the Pentateuch, first five books of the Old Testament. And one of the things that he argues is that up until Israel, or what we would call the, the, the original people of God, the people of the promise, that time was cyclical. So the way we would say time was cyclical is fate. You are born into a station in life, and that is your station to live as best as you can for the rest of your days, and then you just fulfill that, and then your kid does it, and then his kid, and, the, and it's just repetitive. It's cyclical. But Cahill argues, rather convincingly, that Jewish culture is the first challenge to that way of viewing time. So Cahill says, and this is a little esoteric and then I'll try and make it practical, but Cahill says this. He says, Abram comes along, P.S., not a Jew. Right? What is he? Uh, Jesus, not a Christian. I've got, I got into a fight with a guy, not a literal fight, but I got into a heated exchange one time with a guy. He's like, Jesus was a Christian? I'm like, think about what you're saying. He was a Jew, right? So Abram comes along in the story pretty early, and he's called from the biggest known city of, in the world at that time, right? And he's called for a mission that's a little bit unclear, let's be honest, for an uh, undetermined period of time to a place that he had never been. And what Cahill says is the Jewish people introduced to the rest of the world through the Abraham story that time is not, in fact, cyclical, but that the universe is wide open. There's possibility. A lower middle class black kid from Atlanta, Georgia, can become one of the three most important citizens in the history of the United States. A poor kid from Kentucky slash Illinois, who's awkward until the day he dies, can grow up to be the most important president in the history of the United States. That time is not cyclical, that the future is open. Cahill argues democracy is not possible if not for Abraham. Are you with me? Because what type of society fits well with a cyclical view of the world? Kings and peasants. 
right? That's what Great Britain is still, wink, wink, like negotiating, right? The prince is getting married, the prince is getting married, but Parliament. If you believe the Abraham story that time is open, the universe is open. So scientifically, and there's people in this room who are smarter than me on this, the universe is expanding every single day. The universe that we lived in is not fixed. It's not static. It's literally growing every single day. We don't even know at what rate. Scientists get their PhDs and argue about it for their whole career about how fast the universe is growing. Right? But the point is that our creation is dynamic. Uh, change is woven into the very fabric of your own body. Every seven years, right? You're t literally a totally new person at a molecular level. That explains a lot, right? <laughs> That's why you don't recognize the person in the mirror. You're, you're literally a different person than you were seven years ago. Um, I think it's terribly exciting, and it has incredible implications for people of faith. Scott McKnight was talking about that in his class at the chapel this morning. If you didn't get a, ch a chance to hear his class on the Holy Spirit, make sure you get the podcast or the YouTube. When he was talking about if the future's open and there's possibility and we have the Spirit leading us, maybe that puts us more in line with what you see in Acts. And it seemed good to them. Well, that's weak. <laughs> I need more than it seemed good to them, right? Okay, so that's the first thing. Then the second observation, um, I think all of us, and uh, including when we walk with people who are struggling with faith and science and the bigness of creation and how does faith fit in all this and what do we even really believe and have to say to the hard questions of life, I think we have to make a decision. I'm, I'm speaking about myself. I should say I. I have to make a decision every day if I believe that planet Earth is fundamentally a friendly, loving place to be. Or is it inherently violent and antagonistic? Now, I love paradox, so I know it's both, but which is it more? And I would argue that fundamentally, creation is an invitation of goodness, of joy, of beauty, of pleasure, Right? As some theologians have pointed out, the Bible does not start in Genesis 3 with Cain and Abel killing each other. Where does it start? And it was good. And I think we have to make a decision at a core level, not even of, of being a Christian, but of just being a human. Like, what does it just mean to be a human? Do we believe that the universe is inherently welcoming, inviting, friendly, wants us here. And we know that that's harder and harder with school shootings and terrorism and huckster politicians and, right, preachers who embezzle money from their church. Like, it's harder and harder to believe that the universe is inherently a good place to be. So tomorrow, for those of you who are able to come back, I'm going to make this argument that for many of us who grew up in conservative evangelical, like Baptist, Church of Christ, Nazarene, we spend the first half of our lives trying to wrestle with the divinity of Jesus, and then we should spend the second half of our lives trying to figure out the humanity of Jesus. And then 
we have one really good year right before we die. No. <laughs> I finally got it figured out. And now you get to go meet him and find out if it was true. Um, most of us in conservative circles were soaked in the divinity of Jesus. And then when we realize also that the church has said for 2,000 years that Jesus was fully God and fully human, that becomes the place where we can put the whole story together and say, I can live in this tension of this chasm of this God who made the whole Milky Way and all the other hundreds of thousands and became a Jew in the first century and rescued the world through this thing called the kingdom of God. That's the pursuit um, that I'm interested in the most. Thank you for being here today. Um, I know for some of you left brain people, this may have been like, uh, I'm not sure what was going on, but if you want to stay and talk for a little bit, I've, I've got some time. Go in peace. Have a good afternoon.